Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, thank you again as we approach uh, uh, Christmas that we can reflect on your word and see uh, the incarnation in light of the bigger story of Scripture. Um, it will help us uh, appreciate Christ, his work, his person, uh, what he came to do uh, all the more. I pray you'd be with us as we do that, uh, as we look at uh, from the exodus to the exile today. And I pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So uh, if you weren't here last week, uh, what I've decided to do uh, is go through, uh, in preparation of uh, Christmas, and uh, it's Advent season, obviously, so we're, we're going through the whole Testament, very briefly. Uh, we started from the New Testament last week, so really quick overview. We started in Matthew 1, and, I, and I'm using Matthew as really a guide uh, for what we're doing, and Matthew uh, opens with, as many of you know, a genealogy, everyone's favorite part of the Bible, and he sums up that genealogy in chapter 1, verse 17, and he said this, he's, well, I read the very first verse of, of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then he says, son of David, son of Abraham, so immediately he sets Jesus within the context of the whole story, you don't, you can't understand who Jesus is, and what he came to do, without knowing who David is and Abraham. Right? Jesus is the culmination of this long story. It's like you know, going to a movie halfway, you're like, well, this doesn't make much sense. So he goes, he goes back, and, that's what, and this is what we're doing. Is we're tracing the story from Abraham to David to Jesus. Okay? And then last week, I said we can't talk about Abraham without talking about Genesis 1-11. to right? Because God chose Abraham to put the whole world back together that we screwed up in Genesis 1 to 10. Okay, so you've got to see Abraham within the context of what humanity's, God's purpose for humanity in Genesis 1 to 11. Okay, this is Israel. God chose Israel to put all of that back together. So Israel was missional from day one. Right, God elected Abraham out of what is modern day Iraq, which is Ur, in order to bless all of the nations. Okay, and we looked at, I tried to trace for you with Abraham showing you how, if you remember, closely connected obedience was with that mission. Now, I think I showed you like three places, Genesis 18, uh, 26, and somewhere else, where, uh, this, this is often overlooked, but it's important for where we're going, uh, that God, it's, it's, in, in one sense, the promise is unconditional. Right? God has a covenant with Abraham, he's going to fulfill it. But on the other hand, there is, Obedience is required. Okay, we'll see how these things work together, but we need to see this because the question after Abraham is, okay, now that Israel's going to come from them, are they going to actually obey it? And, spoiler alert, right, they don't. And we'll talk about that. We, we ended up, the last place we looked at was Exodus. Um, Exodus 19. So, uh, most of you know, probably all of you know, that the, when, when God's, God's people, they're fruitful, they multiply after Abraham, they end up in Egypt at the end of Genesis, and Exodus begins with them being fruitful and multiplying in the face of persecution. Remember uh, at the beginning of Exodus, the more there was a new Pharaoh in town, and the more he afflicted them, the more they grew, uh, which is a theme all through Scripture. That's what you see in the early church, right? Persecution doesn't stamp out the church. It's the means by which God makes the church grow. It's, it's when the church... And God's people are all kind of just, uh, uh, when they have all the good stuff and they're not persecuted, they become complacent. 
right? And so uh, well, we looked at that, and we, we, we passed over the great exodus. God delivers them out with mighty uh, miracles, and he brings them to himself, right? So the goal of the exodus was relationship with God. He had redemption, then relationship. He brought them to the mountain, and we, this is where we ended off in chapter 19. I'm just going to read a couple of verses here. Uh, verse, this is chapter, you don't have to turn here. Uh, Exodus 19.5 they're at the mountain and he says this now therefore if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples exactly what he said to Abraham I made a covenant with you but there's a condition of obedience right because the, the people standing at the mountain are the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham right you see the continuity this is why he's saying the same thing I'm just taking basically what I, what, what I promised to Abraham individually He's now applying to the nation as a whole. Okay, So if you'll keep it, uh, you'll be my treasured possession. Uh, that word there, segula, uh, it's, 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 a, it's a king's pride, a king's like treasure jewels is what, is what the word there is in, is in the Hebrew there. Uh, he says, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Okay, so there it is. There to be a kingdom of priests. Priests mediate the presence of God out. Okay, so they're going to be the conduit through which God is going to reach the nations if they keep, if they keep his uh, covenant. Uh, fast forward, uh, we, can, we can really summarize um, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, uh, Joshua, and Judges by saying they didn't keep it, right? Um, does anyone know when we get the book of Judges, what, what's, the, what's the refrain? I'm sure someone knows here. What's the refrain in Judges? Actually, it's the last verse of the book as well. There's a refrain, it occurs four times, I think. Everyone did what was right in their own, right in their own eyes. And it, it often begins a couple times, uh, in those days there was no king. So from the perspective of judges, kingship is looked on as a good thing. So in, in those days there was no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And in that way it points forward to the book of Samuel. Because guess who comes in the book of Samuel? First Saul, but he doesn't really count. I call him the people's choice, right? <laughs> David's the first real king. Uh, and so the whole book of Judges is pointing forward. They need, they need, the judges didn't work. They need a king who's going to come. And uh, if you go back to, sometimes overlook, you don't have to go back here, I'll just throw it out there. If you go back to Deuteronomy 17, God made provisions for a king all the way back uh, in Deuteronomy. Um, it's a misunderstanding to think that kingship was wrong, wrong-headed. It was kingship like the other nations that was wrong, right? Israel wants a king, if, uh, uh, with, this is Saul, like all the other nations. The point, the problem is they weren't supposed to be like all the other nations. That's literally what the word holy means, is you're to be separate and be different. But kingship in and of itself, uh, in fact, let me just, this actually sets up very nicely. Let me just, you have a turn there. Read you a few verses from uh, this is called the kingship law back in Deuteronomy. This will set up where we're going with David uh, very well, and this is very countercultural in in their own day, and you'll see why in a second. This is Deuteronomy seventeen fourteen. He said, "When you come into the land the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and say, I'll set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me," he said, "You may indeed set a king over you." Whom the Lord your God will choose. And he gives them the, the qualifications. One from among your brothers you should set over you. So you can't have a foreigner. It's got to be an Israelite. You may uh, not put a foreigner over you. Verse eight, uh, 16. 
only he must, when I read this, tell me who you're thinking of. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return back to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Because uh, I said, never go back that way again. He shall not acquire many wives. <laughs> horses, wives. He married in, the first one was Egyptian. Uh, probably a political marriage. Uh, he says, uh, lest they, the wives, lest they turn his heart away, nor shall he acquire excessive silver or gold. Solomon literally does every single one of these. That's the whole point of, the, the author of Kings assumes you know this. So he's not supposed to be like that. What was the king supposed to be like? Verse 18. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. Probably the whole, pendant, the first five books uh, of the certainly Deuteronomy, probably the whole first five books. And it shall be with him, he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up over his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right or to the left, that he may continue long in the kingdom, he and his children. The king was supposed to have make a copy of the Bible. He was supposed to write it on himself. And he's supposed to obey it. Meditate not and obey it, and be an example for the whole people. Because as the king goes, the people go. That was the job of the king. That's completely countercultural. That you won't you won't find that in in the kings of the other nations. He's supposed to be a moral example of obedience and be just Bible saturated. That's the whole point of the king. Uh, and so when Judges says there's no in those days there's no king, they're looking for a king like this. Where is this king going to come? He's going to lead the people in obedience to God. Um, uh, it's not Saul, it is David. And the most important text here, and you can, and I'd suggest you do turn here, 2 Samuel 7. One of the most important passages in all of the Bible, certainly the Old Testament. Uh, so, uh, uh, Saul, in, in 1 Samuel 8, the people do crap for a king, uh, but again, they want one like all the other nations. And uh, Samuel tells him what that entails. He's like, all right, you want one like all the other nations? Well, then uh, all your sons are going to go out to war. They're going to die. And he tells them all the, the negatives. And he's like, you still want one? And they're like, yes. He's like, That's not, not the right answer. They gave him Saul. Saul doesn't work out. Uh, David, finally God chooses David. Those of you who know the story. He's not the people's choice. He's the opposite. Saul is tall, dark, and handsome. David isn't. In fact, even when uh, the, you remember the prophet Samuel goes to David's father's house, Jesse, he's like, it's this guy. It's this son. And he's like, no, it's not this one. It's this one. He's like, no, it's not this one. Oh, it's the ruddy one who's out there shepherding the sheep. He, it, God, he says, God sees the heart. He doesn't look on the outward appearance like man looks. God completely does it in a completely different way. Uh, so David becomes king and 2 Samuel 7 is where God makes this covenant with David. Okay, so if you have... If you're not a person who, write, doesn't, who writes in your Bible, become a person who writes in your Bible. Okay? And, and circle, star, you know, draw lines to this chat. Whatever you have to do, this is really important. So I'm going to start reading in uh, verse, uh, just a few verses from the chapter here and there. Verse 1. Now when the king lived long in his house, and the Lord gave him rest from all his enemies, this is what all the Abrahamic promises were pointing to. He was going to bring him in a land. The people are going to multiply, have a king, they'd have rest from all their enemies. So the author is telling you, all those promises are coming to fruition now in David. This is a high point in the Old Testament. 
So he had given him rest for his enemies. The king said to Nathan, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Remember, the ark has been dwelling in that portable worship tent, the tabernacle. And so God has kind of been a nomad and hasn't had a place. And David's like, I've got this nice house. God, you know, he needs a nice house too. And doesn't really know what he's saying. Uh, and Nathan said to the king, Go, do all this in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And then uh, scan your eyes down to verse 8. And this is where we're going to focus on. Uh, God basically says, You're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. Verse 8. Now therefore, thus says the Lord to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be a prince over me, over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies. Now, as I'm reading, think of where you've heard this language before. Uh, He says, uh, verse 9, And I have been with you wherever you went, and I will make for you a great name. Huh. You heard that before. God says he's going to make someone else a great name. And I will appoint a place for my people. Oh, so they're going to be in a land. He's going to make them a great name. And I will plant uh, them so they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the, uh, from the time when I appointed judges over my people. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. Now, as in English... In Hebrew, the word bayit is the word house, has many meanings. There's a play on words here, right? David wanted to build him a house, a physical structure. God says, I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Okay, so that's what he's saying here. So lots of, so this, is, this, this dynastic promise is really important. When your days are fulfilled, so as I'm reading this, think of who, who does this refer to, or, or who, who is the descendant in view as I'm reading these verses? When your days are fulfilled, talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, so when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. So immediately, who's David probably thinking about here? You're going to die, I'm going to raise up your offspring after you. Solomon, right? Probably, okay, this is going to be my, my biological child, the next one in line. But listen to as he keeps talking. That's, that's true, but is that all this can be referring to? Because listen to what he says. Who will come from your body, so it's going to be a biological descendant in the line of David who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Okay, Solomon's a pretty good candidate for that. He shall build a house for my name. Does Solomon build a house? What kind of house? Physical structure. Right. Uh, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from, from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house, so your dynasty, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So what's the key word that he's repeated? Forever. Right? Think of what's the movie? Am I thinking of Sandlot? Is that right? Yeah. I think in class I said Goonies, and that wasn't it. There was something. Uh, hey, you guys. That's what it was. It was yeah, Sandlot. Forever. Now, did that happen with Solomon? No. Right. Well, it didn't. Certainly not. Did he commit iniquity? Yes. But notice how you have the conditional and that unconditional 
uh, aspects here. Conditional, he needs to be obedient. And when he commits iniquity, God's going to discipline the Davidic king. But he says, even then, I'm not going to take my steadfast love from him. Right? So the, the, the point really is, who is going to be this king that's going to be on the throne forever? Not whether there's going to be one. It's going to be the one who's obedient. Right? So, so there will be one that's going to rule forever, but he's going to be obedient. So it's initially Solomon, but it ultimately can't be Solomon. Look at the next couple of verses here. Verse uh, 18. Uh, then, the king, then King David went and sat uh, before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord? That, and what is my house that you brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Now I'm reading from the ESV. Does anyone have, just curious, a different translation with them? Because I'd love to see... Oh, everyone has an ESV. The English Southern Version. Right? Uh, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes. Uh, the reason is the last clause is translated like a hundred different ways. If you want a fun afternoon, um, uh, something fun to do, just go look at, go to like, uh, it's like Bible Hub or something, and look at, how, count how many different translations of the end of verse 19 there are. ESV, I think, is the best here. Not always the best, but I think it's the best here. Uh, you have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And here's the part. This is the instruction for mankind. The translations are wildly all over the place. It literally says, Zot Torat Adam. So this is the, you heard Torah in there, Torat. Uh, this is the Torah of Adam. This is a wooden translation. Of the man. That's what it says. So everyone's like, what in the world does this mean? Uh, I'll spare you all of the really nerdy details, but the best option probably is uh, instruction to a, a good translation of this word uh, in many places, but it often refers to, to a law, right? And so it means something like, if you're going to flesh it out, uh, a law for the benefit of mankind. This. Like, what is this? He says, this shall be a law or instruction for, meaning for the benefit, of mankind. Well, he's just been talking about the Davidic covenant. And we're used to thinking of the Davidic covenant as like just for Israel, because it's Israel's king. But as, and so I'm trying to do this, we, we, so we know that can't be the case, right? Because the promise has always been universal to all the nations. So this is a clear statement where he's saying the Davidic covenant and what God's doing through it, that is to bring a king who's going to reign forever, is for the benefit of all mankind. So again, Israel is to be a light to the nations. So the whole fate of humanity hangs on whether this king is obedient or not. So got to feel the drama. Okay, you're supposed to. We've read this so much, but got to feel the. So now after David, you're like, all right, what's going to happen? And as you've, if you've read, if you've, if you've had the, uh, if you can stick to it and read through Kings when it gets really confusing, but tons and tons of kings come. Uh, uh, I should have said, let me back up just a bit. Um, the, the, under David, the kingdom really is only united for a very, very, less than 70 years, a very short period of time. And, you, and I alluded to it, but you all know his son Solomon completely broke the law of the king. He acquired, he had a, Egyptian, a marriage alliance with uh, an Egyptian woman. He acquires much silver, gold, and the Obviously, the big thing is that his 
uh, wives bring in foreign gods and lead his heart astray. And at that point, the kingdom splits into two. And they ne- it never comes back together again in the Old Testament. If you want to read about all this, it's 1 Kings 11 and 12. I'm not going to read it, but that's where you get the split. So now, what you have... I just said, I need an excuse to use this. So what you have is Israel, after the split of the kingdom, you have Israel in the north, and then you have Judah and... What's the capital of Judah? I'll just do Jeru, Jerusalem in the south. So now you have two different kingdoms after David, about a thousand. And as you read through the book of Kings, I'm just summarizing it, um, you get like 20 kings, I think, in about each. And they're 0 for 20 up here. They're all terrible. Um, you, if you read through Kings, you know David is the gold standard. They, they weigh uh, how well a king did based on how he measured up to David. And even though David wasn't perfect, David's still the gold standard. The, so they're over 20. So that's not going to work. And they're actually exiled in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Assyrians. Okay, so the north is out of the picture in 722. No good king. They're disobedient. So all that is left is Judah. So uh, you can read about this in 2 Kings 18 to 25. This is like the end of this uh, big part of Israel's history. So now you're thinking, all right, didn't work in the north, no good kings. You're like, come on, south, how's this going to go? They they have a couple good kings. Uh, You probably know Hezekiah. He's known for his trust. He trusts in God, and God blesses him, and God forgives him. But ultimately, he's, (laughs) he's the guy that's like, Remember the Babylonians come in and he's like, hey, let me show you everything in our temple. Come on in. And he's like taking notes. He's like, all right, uh, take this first. So he shows the Babylonians in, which foreshadows they're going to come. Uh, So you also had Josiah, who was good. Uh, He's known for, if Hezekiah is known for trust, Josiah is known to be a a man of the law. Remember, there was a big reformation under Josiah. They rediscovered the book of the law. The Bible had been just hanging out and collecting dust. And he's like, oh, what's this? And he opens it up and he's like, oh my gosh, we're doing everything it says not to do. And then he goes and smashes all the you know, uh, high places and all that. Uh, so there's two good kings, but as I alluded to, they also don't uh, uh, match up to what a king should be. And in 586, sorry, 586 B.C., that's terrible. Uh, 586 B.C., I'm going to that. Uh, Babylon comes, they destroy the temple, uh, they destroy the walls, they, they, they take the king, Zedekiah, they slay his sons. The last thing he sees is his sons getting slayed. Now why would that be, for a king, why would that be the most horrific thing you could see before you die? That's your lineage. And why is that important in light of the whole story and everything I just read about in Second Samuel 7? What did God say about the throne of David? There's going to be a king forever. But how can that happen if the, if the king's sons are getting slain right in front of his eyes? So you're thinking, how, is, did God, like, we know God made that promise, but have we outsinned his grace? Like, he's been patient, but, so is, this, is, this is the lowest point, the biggest crisis point in the entire Old Testament is the exile. All of the promises to Abraham and David seem to be reversed. So think about it. 
The promise was land. The promise was multiplication of people and a king. Uh, they get kicked out of the land. The king uh, is, and then his eyes get gouged out, and he gets carted away. The king is gone. The land is gone. They have no place, and the people get slayed and actually diminished. Not so. The all of the promise, everything seems to be contradicted. And so this led to a crisis in Israel. In fact, what's interesting to do is in, in Kings you get the, and if you want to read about this, this is in Second Kings 25. It's also the last uh, chapter of Jeremiah. It basically, uh, Jeremiah just takes uh, King, Kings 25 and slaps it on the end of his book. Um, so you get God's perspective from here. You get the people's perspective in the Psalms. Just to show you how much of a crisis this was, flip over to Psalm 89. Psalm 89 for a moment. So we have prayers of the people when this happened. Okay, so keep everything in your mind. They're, they're thinking promise forever. Because remember what he said. He said, even if he commits iniquity, I won't revoke my promise. It seems like, I mean, the, the exile was 70 years. Imagine every year that went by. You're like, what about that, God? What about that promise? Another year went by. Another year went by. Another year goes by. You're thinking the Lord has just forgotten about you. And 89, there's a number of them, but 89 is one of the best to see this. Um, just scan your eyes down. If, if you just read the first part of the psalm, you're like, this is a, bless you, this is a great uh, psalm of praise. Um, but you'll see what's going on here. And it, look at verse, I'll just read it some random verses. Look at verse 1. Uh, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. My mouth will make him known. Your faithfulness to all generations. And he has a very specific aspect of his faithfulness in view. For I said, steadfast love will be built forever. And your heavens will establish your faithfulness. And then verse 3 tells you what he's talking about. You have said. Now it's important that they're like, and I quote. It's important that they're basically quoting what God said. Keep that in mind. You have said, quote, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne uh, throughout your generations. This is 2 Samuel 7. This is, he says, remember what you said back in 2 Samuel 7? But now it's the context of praise, so you're thinking, this is great. Uh, skip down to verse 19. He's going to really talk. So 2 Samuel 7, you'll see, is obviously in the background here. He says, of old. And, and I skipped a bunch of praise. So it's just a bunch of praise. God is great. Um, he's faithful, all that. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, David, and said, I have granted help to the one who is mighty. I have exalted the chosen from the people. I found David my servant with my holy oil. And I have anointed him. Remember, when they're saying this, there's no king on the throne. So keep that in mind. When they're praying the psalm, that king's eyes have been poked out and there's no king. So they're recounting these past promises to David. And you're like, why are they doing this? Uh, verse 22, the enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. God said about the king, I'll crush his foes. I'll strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness uh, and steadfast love shall be with him. And in him my name, and uh, my name, or excuse me, and in my name his horn, symbol of strength, shall be exalted. Uh, verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Verse 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever. 
and my covenant will stand firm before him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his day and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his this is a, this is a verbatim quote of what we just read. If his children forsake my law and don't walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and don't keep my commandments, then I'll punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquities with the stripes of men, but I will not remove my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went from my lips once for all. You cannot say this any more emphatically. I have sworn. This is the God who cannot lie has sworn. Uh, and they're still quoting. They're quoting God directly, by the way. You've got to keep that in mind. I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon that's established. Okay, so you're thinking, if that's all the psalm was, like this is a great praise psalm amid the exile and even though it seems like the promise has failed, the people think it hasn't. Keep reading. Look at verse 38. But you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You said you keep it forever, but, you, but the Bible says you're going to keep the promise forever. Experience says that you're full of wrath. Contradiction. Verse 39. You have renounced the covenant. He said, I would never do that. You said you'd never do it. You renounced it contradiction but you didn't did you know this was in here they're basically saying you said this here's what life looks like you have defiled his crown in the dust you've breached all his walls you've laid his stronghold in ruins all who pass by plunder him he has become a scorn to his neighbors you've exalted the right hand of his foes and if you study this closely He's repeating the identical vocabulary he used to praise God in the first half of the psalm to make this point. He said one thing, but experience looks the other way. You have made his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword, and you have not made him stand in battle. Uh, he says, you cut his days short, verse 45. You've covered him with the shame. Verse 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide your, yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? These are rhetorical. These aren't real questions that if, if, if God says, well, it's only going to be 70 years, he's like, okay, great. These are indirect statements. It's been too long. In light of what you said, your wrath is burning too long. Make it stop. This is what they're saying. He says, remember how short my time is. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver a soul from Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Uh, he says, Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. The end. <laughs> this is Israel in exile. They're struggling with this promise Everything hangs on the Davidic king, and yet it seems that God has contradicted it. But don't think, I heard one person say, this is the low point of faith. This is the high point of faith. Because look at what they're doing. They haven't abandoned faith. Like, the whole reason this is a, this is a problem to them is because they won't give up on the promise. They know God can't lie. It's, there seems to be a, a conflict between faith and experience, 
but they're hanging on to God. It's easy to believe when experience lines up perfectly with your faith. But what do you do when it doesn't? This is what they did. They hung on, but they cried out and said some stuff that I've heard some people say, we can't pray these psalms. That's absolutely wrong. Thank God these psalms are in there. Uh, If you haven't, many people have, but if you haven't been to a place in your life where you don't feel this way, you're either not fully honest or you haven't lived long enough. Right? Because life often seems to contradict the promises of God. They don't, but these are instructive. They help us from abandoning the faith when they do. So this is the they're clinging on to, to, to this promise. And they're basically, as one writer says, holding up to God to his nostrils and saying, you fix it. You know, you brought judgment upon us because of our sins, so you can fix it. Now, the, the, the last... I didn't read this on, pur- on purpose because um, I wanted to set it up that way. Uh, the very last section, and you don't have to turn there, we'll end on this. Right after Babylon comes and, and destroys Israel or Judah, Jerusalem in 586 and they poke the king's eyes out and destroy the temple and they cart all the people away and all that sort of stuff. Uh, that's not how the, the story ends in the book of Kings. Very interesting. Uh, there's a little appendix that I don't know if you've noticed this before. So keep everything in mind I just said. They're wondering, what is, what is the status of the promise to David? This is, this is 2 Kings 25, 27-30. Last three verses. It seems kind of random. So what do you think this means? You get, it's like uh, the, the Marvel movies or whatever, or other movies where you wait after the, the uh, credits, and like five minutes later there's a scene. This is what happens. You think it's over, everyone's walking out of the theater after verse 26, and then something pops up on the screen. So that's what this is. And in the 37th year of the exile, so you've been thrust 37 years into the exile, and this is where we read. Jehoiakim, king of Judah, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He was the guy that had gone into exile before the guy whose eyes got poked out. Uh, The guy whose eyes got poked out, the last one on the throne, was a puppet king that Babylon set up there because they could control him. He wasn't an actual legit uh, king in the line of David. So Jehoiakim was the last actual Davidic heir on the throne. So in the 37th year, for some reason, and if you read Babylon's own literature, they write about this as well, which is interesting. Uh, the king of Babylon graciously freed Jehoiakim Judah from prison. He spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with, who were with him in Babylon. So of all the kings that the king of Babylon subdued, for some reason, he exalts the king of Judah over, over all of them. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived to the end. Why does the author end in this way? What is he telling you? What's the biggest question we have as we come to the end of this, after the exile and the king's gone, the promise is still alive. The promise—it's very faint, but God has not forgot. God cannot lie. There, so this is a glimmer of hope. 
And it's going to really excite all these incredible promises. We'll look at one of those next time in the exile of this coming David who's going to be the complete opposite of those guys. He's going to obey at every single point where they didn't. So that's going to set us up nicely. Um, so we'll look at uh, from the exile to Jesus next week. Okay. Uh, let me pray. Lord God, thank you for your word again. Thank you that you're faithful even when we're not. Uh, we thank you that you, uh, Lord, you, you discipline us uh, for our good, and it is for our good. Uh, but ultimately, Lord, we know um, it's a sign of your love. Uh, thank you that we can read how you've worked through history and we can see your grace on every page of the Bible, even the Old Testament. I pray you prepare our hearts as we uh, think through Isaiah and other prophets uh, and how they speak about the one you would send to be the true and ultimate Davidic king uh, next week. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.